We're going to turn now to the letter to Titus for the last time. The last time. We're going to do one final message from Titus, and then next week we're going to do something completely different. So come back next week to figure out what that's going to be. Um, Titus chapter 3, we're going to read the whole entire chapter tonight as we kind of set our minds on the Word of God and, and what he wants us to know from the letter to Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves were once, uh, once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send uh, Artemis or Tychicus to you, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently, uh, Diligently help send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. And our people must also learn to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you, greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Hey, let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this time that we can come together around your word and and hear the truth of your word and be helped by it. And, And there's so much here. But we pray that you would um, really penetrate our hearts with precision through your word, by the power of your spirit, and teach us the things that we need to know. Convict us of, of what, we, what, what we are doing that's falling short of your will, and give us power and grace and strength to do your will, and to live, and to live our lives to the fullness for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Debates. 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 I'll admit... Debates are pretty fun. Some of my favorite memories from COVID are debates. Which team is better? The Angels or the Dodgers? Which is better? The book or the movie? Obviously, it's always the book, right? (laughs) Which is better? This is obvious. The prequels or the originals? Obviously, it's the originals. Obviously. Which is better? Debates, debates. Lots of debates. Debates can be a lot of fun, and I enjoy them. It's fun to banter about. But in our passage tonight, I don't know if you noticed it, but the Apostle Paul finishes his letter 
to Titus, warning him about the danger of a certain kind of debating. What kind of debating is this? There's a danger, he warns us of, in debating. There's a a danger that a debate can cause you to sin. A, A debate can stir up anger, resentment, strife in you, quarreling in you. We need to be guarding against that. But then there's also a spiritual component, particularly with debates on spiritual uh, content. Uh, debates can sidetrack you from sanctification. Debates can seduce you into pride. Debates can distract you from preaching the message that you're called to preach. Uh, debates can throw you off spiritually. Debates can keep you from growing in the way you should grow and distract you from doing the ministry that you should do in the relationships with those around you. We need to be careful about debates and, and how we debate and when we debate. We're, we're now at the end of Titus, and remember the purpose of Titus is very simple. Paul is writing and he's sending Titus really to equip the local church for faithfulness. He's, he's, he's sending Titus to equip the, all the churches on the island of Crete for faithfulness that will result in fruitfulness. We see hints all over the place in Titus of um, evangelism. How you live will Im- impact the gospel message that you present. But, but the main thing that Paul's interested in is the ch- in the church is faithfulness. And that faithfulness is particularly godliness. The church needs to have and be filled with godliness if they are going to be fruitful. So we saw this all throughout the letter to Titus. We saw there is a necessity of godliness over the church, right? How you are led will reflect itself in how you live. There is a necessity for godliness inside the church. How we relate to one another is crucial in our faithfulness that will result in fruitfulness. And then also in chapter 3, finally, we saw that there is a necessity of godliness uh, in how we behave outside of the church. Once again, we saw this in in 3.1. He's talking about our relationships with those who are not uh, Christians, perhaps those that are maybe a little antagonistic to the gospel message even. There's a lot of fighting that's potentially going on there. We're called to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all people. There is a godliness that we need to show, a godliness that is particularly manifesting grace, mercy, and kindness, right? We need all of these things. This is the godliness we need if we, if we want to be a fruitful, a fruitful church. And now we come to the end of the letter to Titus, and, and Paul, I don't know if you notice this, but sometimes Paul attaches to the end of the letter something that he really wants to emphasize. Some, something that he wants to kind of say, and this is really important, so I'm going to hang on to it until the very end. For example, uh, 2 Timothy. At the very end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, keep on preaching the word, and please come to me because I'm all alone. That is the, the emphasis of the letter uh, that is written to Timothy, 2 Timothy. Also, Revelation. How does Revelation end? I am coming soon. Get ready, right? That is how Revelation ends. There's an emphasis there. And here we see there's an emphasis in the way Paul ends the letter to Titus. We see in verse 14, 
the people need to be devoted to good works. And actually, this is a repeated theme, right? Our people also must learn to lead in good works. They need to be busy about it, uh, meeting the pressing need, being being full of good works. You see this also in verse 8, right? We need to insist on truth because truth results in godly lives. The gospel results in godly gospel living. This is how Paul emphasizes the letter. And this is how Paul ends it. And then also, see one more thing. Notice, he also ends it with another thing that he's repeating. He ends it with a warning. A warning about the danger of false teachers and particularly quarreling with them. We need to be careful about something here that could derail our faithfulness. And and watch what he does here. Verse 8, these things are good and profitable for men. And then verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and conflicts about the law, for they are what? Unprofitable. So Paul has just talked about the things that are profitable, thinking and meditating on the gospel in all of your interactions, particularly in your interactions with unbelievers. And now Paul's going to turn and basically say, and here is how not to interact with unbelievers. Here, here is what an unprofitable life looks like. Do you want to waste every relationship you have, every opportunity that you have to share the gospel? Then do this. We're going to see here ways to derail your faithfulness, basically in, in two ways. You can derail your faithfulness through fruitless arguments, and you can derail your faithfulness through following uh, faithless arguers. Uh, you can you can participate in fruitless arguments, and you can follow faithless arguers. So let's look at this. So for the sake of godliness, right? Uh, for the purpose of usefulness, what should we be cautious of? If we want to be sharp and effective in the master's hand, what should we be cautious of? Number one, we should avoid fruitless arguments. Let's look at that first. First, avoid fruitless arguments. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this because this may um, directly more connect to you guys a little bit more. Where might you have a fruitless argument? I don't know. Maybe it's with some friends you know that you like to debate with. Maybe it's some online uh, discussion board, which you should probably really just stay far away, because who in the world is even in a profitable conversation in that way? Uh, maybe it's just, Maybe this is just a message that's addressing how you spend your time, what you're focused on. Uh, what are you studying for? How are you trying to grow? We should be careful not to devote our lives to fruitless arguments. Arguments that really do no good for either you or for the person you're arguing with. Verse 9, notice that, avoid. That means to, to go around, to steer clear, to shun these things. These things are unprofitable. Don't waste your time arguing with a certain kind of people. What kind of people should you not waste your time arguing with? Those people who don't want to argue uh, about the right things. Those people who have no place for the word of God and who want to resist the gospel. You shouldn't waste your time arguing with them. You should tell them the truth of the gospel. You should be very clear with them. But then you shouldn't drag on argument after argument. It won't benefit anyone, not anyone at all. You are to avoid you are to avoid them. There is a there is a pattern here, actually, that you see throughout Scripture. You see there is a wisdom in knowing when to argue 
and when to avoid arguing. For example, Proverbs 25, 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Sometimes it's good to answer someone who is being foolish, uh, lest other people follow him, lest he continue on in his folly, right? It is good to answer someone who is acting foolishly. But, did you know, there's another verse right next door to Proverbs 26.5. It's Proverbs 26.4. And for all of you people that, are, that just enjoy little um, thought-provoking verses, this is one of them. Right before that verse is this verse. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself become like him. Notice that there's a danger, right? You, you should answer someone who is speaking uh, untruths about God, who is speaking foolishness. But there should be a wisdom to how you answer, a wisdom to how you interact with these people. Why? Because you yourself could join in their foolishness. Or as we'll see tonight, you could join in in sin by continuing on. There is a danger. Oh, what are the qualities of a fruitless debate? Let's, le- let's, let's look at this for a second here. What are the qualities of a fruitless debate? Uh, first off, a fruitless debate is known uh, by the way, it ignores the gospel. A fruitless debate is not about the gospel at all. And once again, we're talking about relationships with unbelievers here. Here's the context. And this debate has, has no interest in arguing about the gospel. If you're going to debate with an unbeliever, you're wasting your time with any other argument but the argument of the gospel. Notice verse 9. What are the arguments that these Christians are going to be tempted to participate in? They're going to be tempted to, to be participating in something called foolish. Foolish controversies and genealogies. Matter of fact, you could look at a parallel here in, in 1 Timothy 1.4. It talks about um, genealogies being endless. There was a particular kind of, of Jewish debate going around about who was connected to who in the line of what, right? And so these genealogies could go on forever, and they'd just like to argue with them forever. And, and nobody was really arguing about anything. But what they weren't arguing about was anything to do with the truth of God. And actually, you see this all the time in evangelism, and maybe not necessarily in the same way that we see here in Titus 3, 9, right? These guys want to derail you, talking about controversies, or maybe the genealogy system. But in in our day and age, evangelism can get derailed all sorts of ways, right? Somebody can say to you, well, I just want to talk about science. Doesn't science disprove the Bible? I only want to talk about science. That could be a foolish conversation to try to argue with. Or some people could say, well, I don't really believe anything you say because I don't like Christians because they hate homosexuals. Or someone could derail the argument by saying, you know what, I just know too many people who, who believe otherwise, therefore I refuse to argue, and, and we'll just keep talking and talking and talking, but I'm going to refuse to believe you or listen to you because I know too many people that believe otherwise, therefore they can't be wrong. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for a well-reasoned, understood answer to those questions, but I am saying it's a trap. What the devil wants, really, is for you to go on and on about all you know about, you know, Genesis 1 through 2 and and prove to them, prove to them all the science and all. He he wants you to spend all of this time in these arguments and debates and never get back to the problem of sin 
and the righteousness of God and the God to whom we stand and have to give an account. He wants the argument to simply be on anything other than the gospel. He wants you to ignore the gospel. Once again, 1 Timothy, matter of fact, I'm going to turn over there really quick. 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, look at this. Uh, this is ex- pretty much the same ministry that Timothy had in Ephesus. There was a, a similar problem in both locations, apparently. Um, Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may command certain ones not to teach different, a different doctrine, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship which is from God, which is by faith. But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Notice, these just, all of these arguments are doing are just leading to speculations and they're, they're endless in their supply. You could spend all of your life arguing about things. But these arguments want to keep you from the gospel, want to keep you from talking about the gospel. And then you can think about it this way. Any time a debate just is trying to derail you, you need to be very cautious about where that's going. Here's some test questions for you to kind of think about. Hey, am I getting distracted from the gospel message in this debate? Test question number one. Is this just swelling my head? Am I doing this just to feel smart? I know the answer, and I want to I really drill this person to the floor and show them how smart I am. Or maybe ask this question, am I more excited about the debate in this than I am about sharing the gospel message? Or you could ask this question, what is my goal? This is what Paul says your goal should be. The goal should be love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. Is your goal to look great and smart in front of other people, or is it to present the glorious message of God, which is the ultimate expression of love? Is it not? If you're just trying to you know, stroke your ego, you are no longer focused on the aim of the gospel. That's just the reality of it. If you, are, if you are excited about debating for debating's sake, you're no longer talking about the gospel. And that's a problem when you're talking with unbelievers. You're, you're wasting opportunities for the gospel. Or how about this? Uh, here's, another, here's another quality of a fruitless debate. A fruitless debate, uh, I'll, I'll say it this way, fruitless debates are for arguing not for understanding. Fruitless debates can be known by this quality. They're simply just for the sake of arguing and not really for the sake of understanding at all. For uh, going back over to Titus, uh, Titus 9, notice we, we have uh, various descriptions of these debates that these Christians can pursue. We see their substance is endless Emptiness, kind of a showing off of knowledge, right? Controversies, knowledge, conflicts about the law, disputes about the law. And then we also see the atmosphere, kind of the attitude of these debates. What's the attitude? It is strife. It is conflict. It is, I like arguing. That is what is at stake here. That's what these people are after, right? This is someone who enjoys to quarrel. They would rather win the argument 
than win a relationship, perhaps you could say. Uh, the purpose the purpose of all their chatter is not actually knowledge, but just because they like to argue. And matter of fact, you see this all throughout the pastoral epistles. You see Paul constantly talking about these, these groups that want to argue about myths and genealogies and all of these uh, uh, all of these things that they want to argue about, but Paul never really refutes these myths or these genealogies. Why? Because there's nothing to refute. They just want to argue for the sake of argument. They're, they're not even making good arguments. They're not even communicating knowledge at all. Matter of fact, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. There is actually a progression. There is a progression that arguing will take you. Arguing for the sake of arguing will take you. When you're not focused on the the purpose of the gospel, understanding the gospel, this is where an argument will take you. He he says this in in 2 Timothy 2, verse 16. Avoid godless and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Look at that. Uh, Ungodly and empty chatter leads to one thing further uh, ungodliness. And their word will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Notice, notice first, further, uh, all these arguments will do, will produce more and more ungodliness. And notice, this, uh, this arguing will sink into you like a disease. He uses this word gangrene, that's referring to some sort of a a cancerous secret spreading ulcer in the body that kind of worked its way slowly through you and slowly destroyed cell after cell until the entire patient was dead. Arguing for the sake of arguing eats away at you and all it will produce in your life is increasing ungodliness in your heart and in your mind. Don't believe me? Look all the way down at verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. When you're arguing for the sake of arguing and not for communicating gospel understanding, you are just going to be quarreling. You're going to be someone who has a eating disease at you, and that is quarrelsomeness. We are never called to fight sin with sin. We are never called to fight the flesh with the flesh. Such arguments rarely win any argument anyway, right? All you are showing an unbeliever when you're just arguing for the sake of argument is that you are just like them. You just want to argue. That is your aim. Not gospel understanding, but argument. It's not that the Christian should never argue, though. The Christian should argue, we see, with the truth of the gospel in their heart for the purpose of communicating the gospel message into the heart of the person they're arguing to. Notice how the believer argues. Now notice, the believer does argue, but they have an intentional attitude with which they bring to that arguing situation. Verse 24, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. You're representing the Lord. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. When you're going in there just to win an argument, when you are wronged, you are not going to be patient. But when you're going in there as the Lord's slave with the order to be kind even to them, 
And then notice he goes on, verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Notice the heart there. You see them as someone who is captive by lies and deceit. And you are going in there with gentleness and not wanting to distract the conversation into an argument, but to communicate gospel truth. The, the only thing you do when you want to just argue for the sake of arguing is distract from the gospel. But when you go in there with gentleness, with kindness, with patience, even when being wrong, when your one heart is to communicate the truth of the gospel, you will not be influenced and affected like you would without it. Two more test questions, test questions for whether you are just arguing for the sake of arguing or arguing for the sake of gospel understanding. Ask yourself this the next time you are into debating. Do I care more about winning this argument or winning their mind? Do I care more about winning the argument or winning their heart? What is my goal in all of this? Is it, is it, is it, is it, Manifesting love for them, concern for them, sorrow for them? Am I praying for them? Am I seeking opportunities to show love towards them? Am I patient towards them, even when they are wronging me? What is my goal when I am debating? Finally, a a fruitless debate uh, can be known by this quality. Fruitless debates ignore God's word as the ultimate truth. Uh, These kind of arguments want to rely on any other authority than the authority of God's word. The only time these kind of arguments uh, spend in God's word is to have conflict about them. And we see this actually in Titus 3, 9 again. Notice, strife and conflicts about the law. This, this is probably referring to a specific conflict indeed, but notice that's the only time that the word of God comes into play when they want to argue about it. Uh, Such arguments are really based in the authority, which is reason, human reason and philosophy, right? This wise guy said this once. I read this in a book once. I saw this documentary once that told me this, right? Any other authority but the authority of God's word is going to ultimately be a fruitless argument according to God's word. We see this in in 114, once again, in Titus 114. Uh, some people are paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men. Notice these are rooted in the mind and understanding of men. And Colossians 2.8 says this, Paul urges the Colossians, see that no one takes you captive to philosophy or empty deceptions according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. Once again, some people want to uh, argue about anything other than what the Bible says. But how does Paul refer to such a debate as this? Notice, this is how he describes a debate that's not that's not seeking to withhold and uphold the truth of God's word. He says, ultimately, if you are not using the word of God, it is an unprofitable and worthless argument. You are a believer that brings one thing. You, you, you bring one thing that's truly life-changing, and that is the fact that the God of the universe has spoken clearly through his word, and that is what you are called to communicate. That is ultimately what you are called to communicate. Anything else? 
is unprofitable and worthless, Paul says. Christians have a unique authority, a unique message that communicates the unique power of God for salvation to all who believes. This is not to say we shouldn't argue about other things. Once again, there's a time and a place for a reasoned response, understanding in our presentation. But let's remember, we do not argue the way anybody else argues. We are argue with the word of God in our hearts and in our mind. And notice this, not only is this kind of arguing worthless, it's also dangerous as well. Once again, uh, arguing, arguing that places any other authority above God's word will elevate your what? Pride. Look at how much I know. Look at how smart I am. I know an answer to every one of their questions. It elevates strife. Why? Because your pride is offended when they don't agree with you. And then you'll start fighting and arguing. And it elevates uh, a seductiveness in the error that they're even presenting. Now, this is kind of crazy, I know. But uh, over in, in Romans 16... 17, Paul finishes that letter with kind of just a warning. And I think what's happening here in Romans, in Romans 16, it's not that the Romans are actually dealing with these kind of issues, but Paul is writing this from Corinth, and he's just dealt with all of these men that are trying to divide and split up the church and just focus on arguments outside of Scripture. And so he sends this warning to the Roman church. He says this in Romans 16, 17. Now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own stomach. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Did you know that these high philosophical debates, these these smart-sounding people, have a way of seducing you? How do they seduce you? They seduce you by your pride, right? I want to seem smart in their eyes. I'm going to study all of their information so that I can look better in their eyes. It elevates your pride, it elevates strife, and it even elevates a seductive turning on your part to the error that they even pursue. We see this back in Titus, once again, the Titus 1.14, right? They're paying attention to Jewish myths, the commandments of men, which turn people away from the truth. You're either pursuing the commandments of men, the philosophies of men, or you're pursuing the truth of God's word. Two more test questions for you about whether you are you know, pursuing God's truth in a debate or whether you're just pursuing your own wit and wisdom. Am I able to bring God's truth in this conversation? Am I willing to bring God's truth? There, there's a bit of shame that may come into your mind when you say, hey, but did you know that the Bible says this? Because that will look foolish in their eyes. Am I willing to bring God's truth? Am I wanting to look smart before them, or do I want to be faithful before them? Test questions. Now, is there such a thing as a profitable debate? I would say there is. And, and all I would do to, to say when a profitable debate is happening is just to kind of flip all of these uh, qualities around, right? Where the gospel is able to be made known, that is a profitable debate. We see that exemplified in 2 Timothy 2, right? When you're doing it with gentleness, with kindness, with prayer. 
Uh, or how about this? When the truth of God's word is not allowed to be replaced or diminished by your fear or your, your pride or your fear of men or something like that, where you can clearly say what God's word says, that is a profitable debate. When you can seek to show love towards someone and not be uh, bitten and devoured by them, when you're not consumed by them and enticed to their forms of arguing, when you can live as a, as a woman or a man of God in the arguing itself, that is a profitable debate. Now, the way you argue, I would say this, really will reflect on your spiritual condition, right? Because, because just think about it. Who am I describing when I describe someone like this? Someone who uh, doesn't trust the gospel. Someone who is shy or uncertain of the truthfulness of God's word. Someone who manifests the fleshly way of arguing whenever they're arguing. Who, who, who am I describing? I'm describing either an unbeliever or a very weak believer, right? Someone who doesn't believe the gospel, doesn't place the utmost authority in God's word, and someone who fights like the world fights, right? The way you argue actually shows a lot about who you are and what you believe. Matter of fact, look at Galatians 5.20. These are the deeds of the flesh, the apostle says. What are those deeds? Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. This is how an unbeliever argues, right? An unbeliever's style of debate, therefore, brings no glory to Christ and is a waste of your time. That is what Paul is saying. But let's look at the second, the second thing. For, for the sake of godliness, for the purpose of usefulness, we should not only avoid f- uh, fruitless arguments, but we should also reject faithless arguers. And this kind of turns back to Titus um, and Paul's directions to Titus as a leader of the church, right? The church must reject people that simply want to argue. Not on the basis of God's word, but on the basis of their own opinions and are causing divisions in the church. The church must reject such people. The church must remove instigators of division and instigators of arguing like the arguing that we have seen. How do we identify a faithless arguer? Well, he talks about it there in 10 and 11, right? Do they love quarreling? Do they love stirring up others? Do they love causing divisions? Or are they content with their own spiritual opinions? When you, when you speak the word of God to them, are they like, well, but... A factious man here is actually a word that uh, has various meanings. It's, it's someone who chooses something, chooses truth, and, and causes a separation to happen. And usually this truth is in contrast to the clear teaching of God's word, right? This is someone who is fine with spouting their own opinions, even as their own opinions are what? Rebuked by the word of God. Notice, this is what Titus is to do. 
Reject a factious man who does what? Who doesn't repent after a first and second warning. What is Titus doing? He's saying, did you know that the word of God says this? And he says, no. And once again, this is in the church context. Somebody who is content with their own spiritual opinions against the word of God. Their quarreling cannot be warned against. Their quarreling cannot be rebuked, cannot be revealed to be. Their actions cannot be revealed to be sin. All they are showing is that they are perverted. That word there, perverted, means twisted, corrupted from within. And we actually already learned about this. This is, this is repeated information, right? Verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being Uh, detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good works. Remember verse 15, um, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, that's who Paul's talking about here at the end of three, to the defiled and unbelieving who are twisted inwardly, who are perverted inwardly, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. They are within fully convinced that they know the truth. And they can even set themselves against the truth of God. That's a scary place to be. And the scariest thing is these people are seeking authority in the church. That's why the church has to act so radically. And another question we could ask of who is the factious man is, hey, what is his fruit? We see this in 10 and 11, right? They are rejecting warning complete, um, continually that is based in God's word. They are inwardly perverted. And notice this results in an ongoing situation in their life. They are sinning, present tense, right? Because they are perverted, they are continually sinning. Their life will show their belief. Their heart will quickly be revealed, right? Uh, fruit of uh, uh, faithless quarrelers will often be a witness against themselves. That's what he's saying right there, right? They are self-condemned. So what should we take away from this? Once again, this is, this is the way Paul ends the letter to Titus. Once again, he wants to... Have Titus pursue a godliness that results in effectiveness, that results in fruitfulness. And once again, at the very end, he's saying, do you know what can really throw this off? Is if the people of God have a shame for the truth of God and the gospel of God and want to wow the people around them that are arguing against them. And you should avoid such quarreling and hold fast to the gospel. And that's true for us, too. Once again, we should have an answer for those people that want to debate with us, but we shouldn't be caught up and consumed. And we should also be very careful about the kind of spiritual leaders we follow. Do they love to argue? Are they often, you know, the source of their authority? We should be careful of people like that. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this letter to, the, uh, to Titus. Thank you for giving it to us and blessing us through it. We pray that we would be people that are not caught up by the arguments, by the controversies, by the quarrels, by the strife of the world around us, but we pray that we would have the grace and truth to hold out the word of God in all of its glory and in all of its simplicity to a world desperately needing to hear its truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.